Welcome to Clabberty, hosted by me, Labby McCann. Hi, I'm Labby. You might remember me from that dream you had, or next year's cover of Time Magazine. Do we have a show for you? Our main stories concerning feminism in China. We've looked at a lot of domestic issues concerning feminism, and I think it's time that we looked elsewhere. If you never hear from me again, please blame Xi Jinping, aka Pooh Bear. For the interview section, we're doing things a little differently. Will's conducting the interview. He wanted some more responsibilities, so I threw him into the fire. Please be extremely critical of his performance as the host. Wow. Thanks for the vote of confidence, Larry. But without further ado, let's jump into our main story on feminism in China. What intrigues me is how cultural differences might influence how we see gender issues. Communist China is built upon the principle that everyone's equal. So how could gender equality fit into that framework? The first article I want to touch on is more of a note. As you'll hear more about, feminism in China has been facing some serious censorship. And I want to preface all of this by saying, I don't speak Chinese. Mispronouncing names should be the expected outcome. Zhang Sharan, one of the Feminist Five, which I'll expand upon later, writes directly on Facebook, From 2012 onwards, my fellow feminist activists and I have been involved in a number of campaigns to promote policy change and public education on issues including combating sexual violence and employment discrimination and promoting the rights of women and children to access education and public spaces. These activities attracted a lot of mainstream media attention. Thanks to our efforts and because of the pressure caused by our legal actions and reports in the media, Government departments had no choice but to begin improving some policies. However, towards the end of 2014, we began to gradually feel that the space for action was closing. The media stopped reporting on the feminist movement, and many activities were stopped directly by public security authorities. On the eve of International Women's Day, several other feminist activists and I planned to stand outside some bus and subway stations and distribute flyers about opposing sexual harassment on public transportation. We hope to involve ordinary commuters in our demonstration. However, before the activity had even begun, five of us were detained by the Beijing Ministry of Public Security for picking quarrels and provoking trouble. This is an equivalent charge of disturbing the peace in the U.S. After 37 days, when the Procuratorate, the Chinese prosecutor's office, Declined to approve our formal arrest, we were conditionally released pending further investigation. Zhang Lele's human billboard movement was also quickly attacked. After trying to organize an effort to purchase ad space on public transportation in Guangzhou, Zhang Lele decided that she would become a human billboard. She would display some of the information on her person as she went about her day-to-day life. Police visited her home and told her to stop that. They then went to her landlord and tried to evict her and other feminist activists. Apparently, Zhang Lele has been evicted four times in the last six months. Zhang Sharan has been forced to move twice. 
And she mentions that within Chinese law, this kind of police action is illegal. There's no law or policy that permits police to enforce the law through evictions. And she continues, however, when we post news about our evictions, within a day, those posts are censored and deleted. Control of online speech is continuously increasing in strength. But throughout this, Zhang Chiran and her allies have not given up hope. They will continue to fight. In dealing with the latest wave of evictions, we thought, how can we use this opportunity to forge more links with our community and inspire more discussion of the issues we face? So we sent out some posts online telling everyone, we're being evicted, we're planning on hosting a moving party. Come see us off, everyone. And I love that. That's fantastic. Even when facing seemingly insurmountable odds, Zhang and others like her have continued to fight the good fight. The next article I want to touch on is from AprilMag.com and is titled, What It's Like to Be a Queer Feminist in China. The author, Xiu Mi, was born a biological man and is now a queer feminist who founded Kaleidoscope Association at Shandong University and co-founded China SOGIE Youth Network that advocates the rights of gender minorities and women. Xiu Mi first heard about feminism in high school through an online course. And she says, the course demonstrated the problems of women's health and rights around the globe with vivid examples and explicitly clarified the idea that women's rights are human rights, which made me realize that we are still not living in a gender equal world. Before that, I had never found women underprivileged. From elementary school to high school, China's education resources are fairly accessible to both boys and girls. It is quite normal for girls to outperform boys in class, and quiet, hardworking female students are preferred by teachers or even nominated as class leaders. Equality between men and women is one of China's basic state policies, and I once even thought that we had already achieved gender equality. She continues, Ever since my childhood, I had been told that men and women are different, yet I always tried to break the rules. When I was a kid, I used to cosplay Madame White Snake, the heroine of a famous Chinese legend, with my friends by draping sheets over my shoulders. I also wore my mother's high heels and put on her cosmetics. Gradually, the people around me started to attack my temperament. Classmates called me she-male, sissy, and girly, and my parents reproached me for not being a boy. Why do I have to go through so many hardships simply because I'm not masculine enough? It was not until I read the book, Woman Haters, Misogyny in Japan, by Japanese sociologist Shizuko Ueno, that I found the answer. In the book, Ueno wrote that deeply rooted in the core of this gender binary system is misogyny. Misogyny is diffused under the system just like the gravity of an object. It is so taken for granted that people are almost unaware of its existence. Misogyny refers to the hatred of women a contempt and disgust in opinion or behavior towards feminization and feminine traits. It explains why sissies are more likely to be bullied than tomboys, as femininity is more disliked by society. According to the 2017 Chinese Transgender Population General Survey report, 75% of transgender women have suffered from school violence. In 2011, a junior high school boy in New Taipei City 
chomped his death after being mocked as a sissy. I came to realize that if we want to emancipate the sissies, we must first liberate femininity. We must declare war on misogyny, and we must reform the culture of misogyny. I like that approach, and I think it's important to embrace any potential ally. The more fragmented a movement becomes, the easier it is to ignore and write off. I'll make sure to do a piece on TERFs, or trans-exclusive radical feminists, in a future episode. I think that's an important topic. Show Me started advocating for equality in college and forming an association to do that. We walked out of the classroom to advocate and speak out. We occupied the campus with over 100 rainbow flags. We used videos and photos to record student support for multiple genders and the rejection of school bullying. They even had a read-through of the vagina monologues. At this point, they had some cooperation from the campus and faculty, but it seems like that was mostly lip service. Little action happened. Show Me writes, In addition to the university's negligence, I was even more dissatisfied with the events and promotion of Girls' Day, which is a popular Take Good Care of Girls festival among Chinese universities. On this day, boys buy breakfast for girls and hang banners on trees to show their care for girls. But just as a prominent Chinese feminist, Li Sapan, has commented, Girls' Day makes lascivious fantasies and consumerism a tradition and convention which reinforces the gender stereotype of men protecting weak women. The school even had a banner that, when translated, read, Your children can have 26 or 27 sugar daddies. Show Me and her association protested that banner by taking a photo in front of the sign with a placard that said, This is sexual harassment. They received death threats. Their private information was released through the internet. This is apparently called doxing. And they even faced accusations that external forces were using them as puppets. The group responded by publishing an article to explain their motives behind the photo, which promoted discussion, had almost 7.5 million views on Weibo, the Chinese equivalent of Twitter, after only one day. The author then continues by saying, The university talked to me for three days in a row and threatened to hand me over to the police if I didn't delete my post as they claimed to have evidence of me organizing an illegal association. And if the police detained me, they would expel me from the school immediately. It didn't work. They later threatened my parents with the same words. Facing huge pressure, I was forced to delete my post and dissolve the association. Show Me concludes by saying that feminist voices, the biggest feminist platform on Chinese social media, was censored. Under the current wave of collectivism and nationalism, we worry that all the feminists and LGBT advocates will continue to be stigmatized. It was the solidarity from other feminists who had supported me throughout this incident that encouraged me to continue to speak out. Thus, I think that women's rights activists in China might also need the support and encouragement from the international women's rights movements. I applaud Shomi for the work she's already done and continues to do. And I hope all of us will support her fight as well. In another article from Shannon Liao, posted on TheVerge.com, one in four married women in China are beaten. Despite Mao Zedong's revolutionary slogans about how women in China hold up half the sky, 
Chinese culture remains deeply patriarchal in a way that mixes communism, capitalism, and Confucian values. There are widespread reports of sexual harassment and gender discrimination, including surveys that show one-third of Chinese college students experience sexual violence or assault. But Chinese courts are often unwilling to accept legal cases, and women are still barred from majoring in certain subjects at college, like marine engineering and geological exploration. Students and professors at Beihang University and the University of International Business and Economics petitioned their universities to enforce more sexual harassment measures. More than 50 professors at Beihang signed an online petition calling for a detailed set of rules to deal with sexual harassment on college campuses. Historically, the government has undertaken some measures to help combat sexual harassment. In Guangzhou, there are subway cars reserved for women during rush hour so that they can avoid groping. Men can only ride these cars during non-peak hours. Since 2016, airports in Beijing, Shenzhen, Kunming, and Wuhan have pink-colored security lines and checkpoints for women so that women can avoid being frisked by male security guards. When the movement sprouted into an online and university-wide campaign, the government was swift to shut it down. Beihang students had planned a January 14th march from the school to the nearby UIBE University, but it was ultimately canceled by the organizers. Some students later told routers that their school told them not to attend. Social media posts about hashtag MeToo in China have been continuously deleted by government censors, which have blocked not only the hashtag itself, but related phrases like anti-sexual harassment. Hashtag MeToo in China is translated as Wo Yi Shi, though activists are now using multiple hashtags to try and circumvent the census. The latest one, hashtag RiceBunny, uses the emoji for rice, me, and bunny, too, as a clever transliteration of hashtag me too. I'm a fan of that one. That's very clever. The next article was written by Emily Rauhala for the Washington Post. She writes, It's been a brutal year for Chinese activists. The rest of the Feminist Five last spring was followed by an unprecedented crackdown on Chinese lawyers, including many who work on women's rights in the shuttering of a renowned women's legal center. Research suggests that Chinese women are losing ground relative to men, and many feel sexism is on the rise. In party-controlled media, people joke about women who are too educated or strong for their own good. The All-China Women's Federation, ACWF, which was founded in 1949, is tasked with campaigning for women's rights, but does so on behalf of a party that is dominated by men at the highest levels. And it often promotes a vision of womanhood that puts marriage and children above all else. I think as we've seen here in the U.S., when the leadership is all men, that greatly increases the likelihood of systemic problems concerning gender inequality. Emily continues, In her book, Leftover Women, author Greta Hong Fincher, shows how the ACWF helped spread the notion that women who are not married by 27 are the human equivalent of stale cake. Japan has kind of a similar phrase, and this one has been co-opted by the men's right movement. They call women past their prime Christmas cakes 
because after the 25th, no one wants them. Thank you for contributing, Will. You get a gold star. Weird. I feel patronized. Anyways, an article published on the website compared women who pursue higher education instead of focusing on husband hunting to yellowed pearls. Indeed, in a front-page International Women's Day commentary, the party's mouthpiece, the People's Daily, said the goal was to give every woman a chance to make their dreams come true and make their life shine. Women are the holders of the secret code of happiness, it read. They play an irreplaceable role in constructing socialist core values through soft power and feminine wisdom. The website of the People's Liberation Army was more directly misogynist. Who says women soldiers are always dark, ugly, and fierce? Read the text accompanying glamour shots of young women in uniform. That's exactly the kind of sexism that the Feminist Five seek to challenge. Their small-scale street performances, the human billboards, are designed to make people stop and think about how social pressure shapes the way women work, love, and live. The final article is also from the Washington Post and is written by Anna Fafield and Chu Yang Jingjing. And this one approaches the issue from another angle, that from legal protection and the lawyers that are trying to help those who are incarcerated. It could be said that Chinese authorities created Wang Yu, or at least the Wang Yu who has become a thorn in their side. She was a mild-mannered commercial lawyer working on patent disputes and the like until an incident at a train station in Tianjin at the end of 2008. She had an altercation after they stopped her from getting on a train, even though she had a ticket, and was then assaulted by several men. But several months later, it was Wong, not the men who beat her, who was charged with intentional assault. After a lengthy and questionable legal process, she spent two and a half years in jail. There, she saw how prisoners were forced to work for no pay and heard their tales of being mistreated and tortured. When she emerged in 2011, Wong had transformed into a human rights advocate, taking on some of the most high-profile cases in China. Wong is one of a group of more than 100 lawyers detained in a highly coordinated raid across 19 Chinese provinces in 2015, part of an effort to smash a major criminal gang that was seriously disturbing social order, according to state media. I interesting story. It's convenient that Wong defended the Feminist Five, who were charged in March of that year for creating a disturbance as they planned a public awareness campaign against sexual harassment. Before she was arrested, Wang Yu was repeatedly denied access to some of her clients who were facing serious charges by the Chinese government. One of these was a spiritual group called Falun Gong. Wang and a colleague protested that by holding signs outside the police station that said, lawyers demand the right to meet with clients. And I think that should be a basic fundamental human right. The authors continue, arrests of human rights lawyers are hardly uncommon in China. As of Thursday, 2015, a total of 2,015 lawyers, law firm staff members, and human rights activists were detained, arrested, or incommunicado in the country, according to the Hong Kong-based China Human Rights Lawyers Concern Group. But analysts said that the scale of the mass detentions in 2015, which came amid a broader suppression of non-governmental organizations and other civil society groups under President Xi Jinping, was astounding. 
This is the most notable crackdown since the one after the 2011 Jasmine protests that followed the Arab Spring when there was concern that the pro-democracy movement would spread to China, said William Ni, China researcher at Amnesty International. But this has far surpassed it in both the scope of the crackdown and the consequences for certain lawyers. And don't think this solely affected Wong. The government went after her family as well. On July 8th in 2015, Wong saw off her husband and 16-year-old son at the airport. They were heading to Australia, where the teenager was set to go to school. That night at her home, the electricity went off and the internet connection went down suddenly at about 3 a.m. She wrote in a text message to a group of fellow lawyers. Then she heard the sound of someone picking the lock on her door. Wong is quoted as saying, I looked outside through the peephole, but it was all dark. Some people were speaking in low voices, but I couldn't hear them clearly, she texted. Neither my husband nor my son picked up their phones. It turned out they had been arrested at the airport. When human rights activists tried to call Wong after receiving her message, she didn't answer. Both Wong and her husband have been in detention since, although their son was released into the care of his aunt, but not before his passport was confiscated. But again, I've got to commend the resilience of these activists in China. Wong writes, The truth cannot be long hidden. I believe that during this time of enlightenment and rapid development of internet and media, any shameful attempt to smear me is doomed to fail. However, the authorities appear to be trying to make sure that doesn't happen. Searches for lawyer Wang Yu and rights defense lawyers have been blocked on Weibo, that's the Chinese Twitter, and the only comments about Wang's case have been highly negative ones. One example is, such a bad person should have been executed long ago. And another, those lawyers who wrote nice things about her aren't any good either. So I think all this paints a very different picture than what's happening in the U.S. There are clearly some systemic similarities, but the censorship and the crackdowns on activists seem to be much more severe in China. And again, I will temper all of this. I am not an expert, and due to the censorship, it's hard to know how reliable all these articles are. By nature, they're contrary to Xi Jinping's presidency, and while that certainly doesn't discredit them, I want to make sure I'm presenting a balanced and fair perspective. If any of you think I have not done that, please point me in the direction of some articles or peer-reviewed journals that do a good job of examining this extremely complicated issue fairly and as objectively as possible. I hope you enjoyed this piece, and right now, let's move on to the interview with Sarah Rose Reynolds. Welcome to the show. It's so great to have you. Do you want to use your full name? Do you want to use just part of your name? That's totally up to your discretion. Yeah, sure. Uh, Sarah Rose Reynolds is my full name, and that's my stage name, and that's what I go by. I had a numerologist tell me that using my full name is more powerful, so I just decided years ago, oh, okay, well, I want to sound powerful, so I'll just do Sarah Rose Reynolds. I think that's a good approach. <laughs> uh, you recently put on a one-person show. Can you tell me about that experience at all? Oh, my God, yes. 
I'm still processing it. I've never done anything like this in my life. A lot of my life has just been me not going for anything because I was afraid to do it. And so I don't have a lot of accomplishments. I just kind of took the easy route. And I got to a place where I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this thing. It was really scary and really exciting. And it turned out to be a big success. Accolades are in order. You had an encore performance. This was your second run of it. So congratulations. That's Thank really exciting. Thank you very much. I remember for my very first show in February, my mom said, you're going to sell this out. And I was like, no, I'm not. No, there's no way. Who's going to come to my show? She's like, no, no, you're going to sell it out. And within three days, the first show was sold out. And I was just shocked. I couldn't comprehend that that many people would want to come see something that I created. And then it just kept going with the next run. It just, oh, sold out, sold out, sold out. And I was like, oh, my God, I guess I'm doing something right. (laughs) To return to the genesis of it, I find with creative things like that, often right at the very end, we find some reason not to do it or some way to avoid jumping in headfirst. What got you past that hurdle? Well, I'll tell you, we're going to go dark real quick, but... I was pretty depressed in my life. I felt like I had done, well, no, I hadn't done anything. I had struggled with being this creative person, and I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do. And I felt like I kept trying things and losing interest. And I got to a place where I was really depressed, and I was thinking, I don't know what else to do. I know that I am a creative person. I know I have all this potential, but I just don't know how to let it out and be successful with it. And I remember saying, if I don't do something big with my life, I should just end it. I started meditating. And during a meditation one day, the words, one woman show came into my head. And I jumped up out of the meditation and I was like, oh my God, I need to do a one-woman show. And years, like 10 years prior, I had wanted to do a one-woman show, but it would have been a completely different show. It would have just been me doing funny voices and stuff, nothing provocative in any way. And I was living with my mom at the time, and I ran into her room and I said, I'm going to do a one-woman show. She got excited, but she's like, oh, Sarah's full of ideas and never follows through with anything. But this felt different. For some reason, I thought, Here's an anchor. Here's something I could focus on. And it was incredible how the universe supplied everything I needed so quickly. Like, since I told my mom I want to do this one-woman show, the next day she said, Oh my God, Sarah, a friend of mine just said she's doing a one-woman show. You want to come to it? She's performing on Wednesdays. So I went to it, and there is where I met the woman who became my director. And it was just like when you're in the flow, things just work out. And at the time, I didn't have a lot of money. My director, she offers a free class every Saturday morning where she teaches people how to do one-woman shows. And so I just was like, I'm going to just start attending these. And she's also really affordable for one-on-one coaching to help you develop your show. And I thought, oh, well, this is perfect. So I started working with her. Jessica Lynn Johnson is her name. She's an angel. (laughs) She was the perfect person for me because she's very driven and ambitious 
but she had this sensitivity and it was like she just knew how to get me and my crazy ADHD brain who wants to quit all the time and just slowly helped me develop this show. Through working with her, it's a miracle, but I was able to do this show. How long was that process? I started working with her in February or March of 2017. And she was preparing me to do, there's a festival called Solo Fest, which is a festival of one-person shows. It's like the largest festival on the West Coast. For like two or three months, every night there's another one-person show. And she is one of the producers at this theater. And so she said, Sarah, let's get your show ready so that you could perform in Solo Fest. I actually gave myself about a year. I did not need that much time. So that's where I first wrote it, the hour and a half version I performed at Solo Fest. And then when we decided to go and take it to the Fringe Festival in June, she said, okay, we got to cut it down to 60 minutes. So we had to cut a third of the show out, which I'm telling you, that was my least favorite part because what I love to do is to create. Editing, taking out stuff that was already there, so not interesting. And it got to the point where she would say to me, okay, sir, we got to edit this down. Look at what could be cut out. And I, no, I don't want to do it. So I ended up just paying her to edit it down. I'd pay her her hourly rate and then she'd bring it back to me. I'd say, good, great. Sounds good. I don't miss it at all. Okay, good. (laughs) So I had nothing to do with the editing process, really. She performed her own one-person show. She has two of them for 13 years on the road around the world, and she's won all these awards. So she knows a lot about the process. And it was great that she was able to help me edit that down. Do you think you could have done it without the help of someone who had so much experience for that particular approach? You mean editing or writing the show? Maybe just the whole gestation process. Do you think that having that resource is really what made it all possible? Absolutely. I'm not a religious person. I mean, I'm spiritual, but I really think that Jessica was plucked down and chosen to be this support person for me, to help be my guide and my mentor. And at the end of my show, I tell everybody, this would not have been possible without this woman standing here next to me. This was a collaborative effort, and I would not be standing here without her support. No, it wouldn't have happened. Nope. (laughs) It's wonderful to admit that. The stars will align. It almost becomes easy when everything is going right. And like you're saying, you're going with the flow. To me, it's shocking how what can normally feel like an uphill battle is just you're running full speed down the mountain and everything's going right. Yeah. And I've been waiting my whole life because people have said to me, Sarah, when you're in alignment, on your path and what is right for you and what you're supposed to be doing, things just flow. I've been hearing that my whole life because I grew up with a lot of hippie kind of people. (laughs) And I keep trying to pay attention when I make a decision, oh, I'm gonna take this job. Oh, does it feel like it's flowing? I don't know. Does it feel like it's flowing? Oh! (laughs) They'll do that. We tend to embrace the cats. They're part of the show. (laughs) That's okay, You you can talk too. No, I mean, even with relationships, it's like, oh, does this feel kind of easy and smooth? Doing this show, creating it was challenging for me. My show is about my struggles with ADHD and how I start things and then I get bored of them and I don't want to finish them. And that has been 
my pattern my entire life. So you can imagine writing 50-page script, and there were so many days where I was like, I don't feel like it. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this at all. Like, I'm so sick of this. And I had to find ways to move through that. And yeah, there sometimes there would be a week where I just couldn't feel inspired at all. I was like, oh my God, I don't know if this is going to happen. And then, boom, like that, something would shift. And I don't know if it was within me or if it was in the stars and the universe, but something would shift. I would get an idea and then, boom, momentum again. I mean, that's kind of how life is, right? It's just you got your ebbs and flows and yeah. Wait, what was the question? Uh, the questions aren't always <laughs> super important. Okay. Uh, more interested in your answers. Oh, the uh, flow. I was talking about the flow. Yeah. yeah. Well, once I wrote it and performed it, then it was out of my control. And it was like, oh, my God, this thing I created, it's just taken on a life of its own. And it was just, if you imagine, like, butter on a warm day going downhill and a smooth surface. <laughs> it's kind of how it, it felt. Just really smooth and <laughs> not sticky. Not No, just smooth down the chute. And uh, oh God, no, not that. Sorry. <laughs> Somehow I'm going to have to bring up poop. I always do. Butter. Butter. We're talking about butter here. Yeah. I like those metaphors. <laughs> so you're identifying this as a pivotal moment where you fully realized one of these projects. Has that changed your approach going forward? Yeah, it has given me more confidence, definitely. Because now I'm like, oh no, Sarah, now you can't use the excuse that you never finish things because you finish something really big, you know? Most people would never do something like this. But not only did you write the whole thing, but you performed over 10 characters and you produced it. And I don't think I've really taken it in how much I did. And I think once I do, I might be like, damn, girl, (laughs) that's not the Sarah you used to be. So take that and run with it and go, oh, I guess I can finish things. I guess I am entertaining. The great thing is doing the Fringe Festival, it's a large theater festival all over the world, but the Hollywood Fringe Festival, I made lots of connections with a lot of other performers and writers and casting directors. And so my next step now is, well, I've already met with another performer and she has her own YouTube channel. And she said, oh, I sometimes I like to have guests on the show. Let's write some sketches together, you know? And I'm like, wow, okay. We wrote a sketch last week. We're going to perform it this week. All the things that I've always wanted to do, but because I did my show, it's like my portfolio. In the past, I didn't really have anybody to show what I was capable of doing. Like you're saying, the the show is tremendous in that respect. Not only do you play, as you say, 10 characters, you sing, you make yourself emotionally vulnerable, you show happy sides, funny sides, you rap, you know? (laughs) I whistle. (laughs) You know, I've always wanted to be a professional whistler. But I just never did anything about it. Just like with everything in my life, I have all these ideas, but I don't know what the next step is. So many people say to me, Sarah, you should be whistling professionally. But it's like, do they even exist, professional whistlers? Maybe now that I have a little more confidence and I know that, okay, you can get an idea and take the little steps. All you have to do is Google professional whistler and see what you need to do. And maybe before I know it, I'll be a professional whistler. (laughs) I don't know. Are you willing to give us a taste? I don't want to put you on the spot. Oh, absolutely. 
That's good. I got my chapstick on. Sometimes it doesn't work if uh, my lips are dry. But here, I'll just do, because this is what I did in my show. Somewhere over the rainbow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wizard of Oz. You have a duet. <laughs> we have a duet. Bravo, I apologize for the rude interruptions. No, that was great. <laughs> that was really funny. Thank you for sharing that. I had no idea going into the show. So that blew me away. I was <laughs> really pleasantly surprised by your whistling ability. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, my dad taught me how to whistle. One question we like to ask on this podcast is, it's more to get your perspective. Our view is that there's a lot of words that people use expecting the other person to have the same definition, but we often have our own versions of that. So can you define feminism in your own words? Ooh, in my own words, feminism is the belief that women should be treated equally. I don't think it at all means that women are better than men. <laughs> I think some people think that. <laughs> no, I think it's just Women and men who believe that women should have all the same rights that men should have. I mean, it's pretty simple if you think about it. <laughs> I don't walk around saying I'm a feminist, but I definitely am. I think everybody should be a feminist. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm distracted because I'm watching your cat lick her butt right now, and that's making me very happy. <laughs> it is endlessly fascinating. I love your definition, though, especially the sentiment, why are we not this way? It seems almost the path of least resistance, too, where you have to actively try not to be a feminist to be a misogynist. You right, know? exactly. A absolutely. I was watching something on YouTube. They had a group of six people, three of them who identified as, I think they said, non-feminists, and three who identified as feminists. And they had them come together to have a conversation. One of the non-feminists was a woman. And I remember thinking, oh, God, she's got to check herself. <laughs> what? And one of the feminists was a man. So the, it was equally mixed. It was really hard to hear the people who didn't identify as feminists talking about how... God, for some reason, they thought that by women having more rights than it was taking away their rights. They were saying like, well, there's a lot of things that happen to men and we need rights too. And it was so hard for me to actually listen to where he's coming from because I was like, are you kidding me? You have no idea how much privilege you have. This was a white male who, I mean, I had to just think to myself, here is a very wounded person. It's really difficult for me to understand when men can't see, or even women can't see, that all we're asking is to have equal rights. We're not saying, oh, we're better than you. 
no, I mean, we are, but no, 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 I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I totally agree. And especially the, the concept of privilege, I think, is interesting where the concept has existed for a while, but the widespread acceptance or even knowledge of that idea seems relatively recent in most circles. How would you try to bridge that gap? How would you communicate to someone who seems incapable of understanding their privilege and how it relates to something like feminism? Well, it's tough because I do not like conflict. I am one to avoid confrontation and debate. I want everybody to get along all the time. So I'm not one to get into a conversation with someone who has very different beliefs from me. Because I think that what happens is I either am just like, oh, God, let's just all get along, or the Scorpio in me comes out, and I'm like, you fucking go to hell then. Oh, oh, you know nothing. You know, so it's like either one of those happens, and I don't know what to do. So usually my friends, when we see someone picketing, you know, against gays or something like that, my friends will be like, Sarah, don't. (laughs) So it's weird that I have these two sides where I'm like, oh, I don't want to go there because I don't want to ruffle any feathers. But then at the same time, I might bite your face off. (laughs) Here's the thing. I know that when I come from a place of love, if I'm really feeling grounded and centered and full of love, then I am capable of being able to talk with somebody who has different beliefs than me and really try to listen to what they're saying. Because the truth is everybody just wants to be heard. And I think I would just say like, look, I respect that you have these beliefs, but this has been my experience as a woman in the world. And I ask that you respect what I've gone through. And it doesn't mean that you're going to lose any of your rights by me just wanting to be equal. So there are rare cases where I feel like I can connect like that. But again, I try to avoid it. My best friend's much better at having those conversations. She recently said, I'm getting to be really good at talking to people who have very different opinions than me. You know, she's been having discussions with ultra Republicans and she's like, it's really good. And I'm like, bravo for you. I don't think I could do it. Maybe you should interview her next. (laughs) I'd be happy to take the name. That sounds fascinating. (laughs) It seems like a more and more necessary skill where, from my perspective, it seems to be getting more contentious. We're, Uh We're so divided that we don't even have the opportunity for a communication channel. It's just an argument from the get go. Uh huh. No, I agree. I mean, I can't even hear the president's name without getting red in the face and angry. My good friend, her father, voted for Trump, and I gave him a piece of my mind. He has two gay daughters who identify as feminists, and one of his daughters is in a relationship with somebody who's from Mexico. It's like, wow, how could he go and vote for somebody who is against everything that your family is? And we had, I wouldn't say a falling out, but he was very upset with me after a few comments I made on social media. And so for several months, we didn't talk to each other. And I recently saw him at his granddaughter's birthday party. And he came up to me. He's like, hey, hey, how's it going? And and I said, hey, you know, I want to apologize for what I said. And we reconnected. He still believes what he believes. I believe what I believe. But it's tough because people on this side feel very strongly. People on this side feel very strongly. And it's like, yeah, how do we? 
And right now, I'm having issues with my roommate right now where we feel very differently about two different things. And I'm trying so hard to see her side. And she's trying so hard to see my side. Well, I don't know how hard she's trying to see my side. But <laughs> either way, it's like, how do you come together when two people have two very different ways of looking at things? When I was a kid, you know how they say, if you could be invisible, if you could fly for Dave. What I wanted was to be able to jump inside somebody else's mind and see where they were coming from. Because I just remember thinking, oh, we all see the world so differently. It would be nice to be able to jump into their mind and go, oh, that's why they feel sensitive about this. Or, oh, that's why they're angry because of this. So maybe somebody will invent that. That'd be nice. <laughs> it's wonderful that that is the superpower you would pick. Just perfect empathy. Right, I know. Can't we all just get along? My whole life has been about connecting people. I love it when I go to a party and I go, wait a second, you're a Sagittarius? I just met somebody else who's a Sagittarius and their dad is a dental hygienist too. You have to talk to each other. And people are like, Sarah, you get excited about the littlest things. But for me, when I find people who have things in common, my favorite thing to do is to bring them together and then watch them go, oh my God, yeah, no, did you... Oh, no, I know him too. And then watching them connect is really my favorite thing to do. And there was a time where I thought, maybe I could have a job where I'm like a matchmaker, but just for people. I just go to a party and I eavesdrop and say, oh my God, I just heard this person talking about this, you know, and like take people who maybe wouldn't talk to each other and bring them together. But I still haven't figured out how to do that. Anyways, that's my favorite thing to do. I yeah. think you're onto something, though. And again, returning to the whole political theme or ideology, whether it's religion or whatever, we seem to focus on these differences. And we're incapable of seeing how much we have in common, too, where I think if you made a list, we have way more in common with each other than we have differences. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, we only focus on those differences. Yes, I love that. Yeah, and that reminds me of another YouTube video I watched, which maybe you've seen, where they took a large group of people, well, like 20 people, and they wanted to show that people who may think they have nothing in common with someone else actually have a lot in common. They were all standing in a group and they said, okay, how many of you are step-parents? The guy with all the tattoos and the guy who looked like he was very religious came out and was like, oh, okay. What ended up happening is you'd see these people connecting who they would probably never, you know, they had people in the political spectrum, people who were very opposed to each other politically. And they realized, oh my God, you have a, a son in fourth grade who's in the Boy Scouts. Oh man, I love my son so much, you know, or whatever. It was stuff like that. And it was like, oh my God, yes, we need to bring people together who look at their commonalities. Yeah, why are we focusing on the differences? I never thought about that. And I think it's surprisingly easy to unify people. I think sports teams are a great example. Yes. Where you really have nothing in common with this person, no shared life experiences, but you root for the same team, best yeah. buddies. Yes, yeah. There have been times where <laughs> I've been on vacation. I'm somewhere where I'm not in my usual bubble of progressive people. And say, for example, I'm at a resort somewhere and there's a whole bunch of heterosexual people. And then I see, oh, there's a, a lesbian couple. <gasps> and immediately we gravitate to each other. just like, oh, hi. And like, we want to be friends with each other because we realize, oh, we are both 
different people in a place that <laughs> we're kind of the minorities here, so we're reaching out to connect with each other. And people who I would never be friends with if I was in L.A. bopping around, but it's like, oh, oh, look, hi, <laughs> hey, here's my people, you know, and then you make connections with them that way. And just because they happen to like to sleep with women, too, <laughs> you know, maybe we had nothing else in common. But it's funny how certain things will unify you. Yeah. Do you think that's something that's innate in us as an animal or is it more of a learned social behavior? I think it's innate. I think that we're always searching for a way to feel like we're somehow connected. For me, it's this immediate, oh, there is some place where I feel safe and understood. You know, maybe not with the lesbian thing. Maybe it's with, even as a Jew, maybe I'll be somewhere you wouldn't normally see a lot of Jewish people. And you meet someone, and you're like, you're Jewish? I'm Jewish. Oh, my God. And then we discover we know all these same people because that's just how it rolls. But there's something instinctual. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. That's yeah. my answer. I understand. <laughs> yeah. From my perspective, that seems like there's benefits and downsides to that behavior. Like we were talking about of how to engage with different people. Can you envision a way that school might be able to prepare students for that? Maybe primary education? Oh, yeah. Trying to match kids who maybe wouldn't normally be friends with each other in some way? Or or just encouraging open dialogue as opposed to debate or arguments? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Don't get me started on the school system. I have never been a fan. I got good grades, but I hated school. I hated it because it wasn't experiential enough for me. I hated how we were supposed to take in all this information, cram it into our brains, and then spit it out for a test, and then boom, you just kind of forget it afterwards. I need to feel more connected to what I'm learning. It needs to be more exciting than just open your book to page 94, okay, read this paragraph. It's not exciting enough for me. There are a lot of things that need to change with schools. I mean, if you're thinking of all the bullying right now, oh gosh, I think really it's up to the schools to try to find ways to make sure that that doesn't happen. Also, you know what the schools should have done? is taught us how to like balance our checkbook and also get us prepared for life stuff that's going to happen after you graduate. Because, you know, my parents sort of showed me, but, you know, if they, like, start teaching you how to save your money and stuff like that, and this is what it's going to be like when you pay your bills, that kind of stuff I think should be taught in schools. Some of the stuff I learned in school I still remember and I do because that's what they taught me. Ever since I left school, I was just kind of flailing around going, wait, what? Money? I thought the whole purpose of money is to be spent. Oh, you have to save it too? Oh, God. I find it fascinating that we'll learn calculus, but not basic finance. Yes, exactly. What the heck? I'm sorry. There's so many things that I learned in school that I never use and I will never need to know. I understand that history is important, okay? But I know that we definitely had a very skewed way of learning history. We learned the white male version of what history is like. But I really think that schools should be a place where they help nurture and develop emotional maturity in a child as much as becoming intellectual, academic people. My mom used to do a process called counsel 
which is a Native American tradition of gathering in a circle and communicating. And she helped bring those to public schools here in Los Angeles. So at several public schools, they actually have a period where the kids go and they sit in a circle and they talk about their feelings and they connect in a way that you would never find in regular schools. And I think that should be in every school. They've had huge success with the way that the kids have gotten better grades. They get along better with their classmates and have higher self-esteem. And just because they have this outlet to be able to express themselves, maybe at home they can't. Recently, we interviewed a woman who works in student affairs for university, Mm -hmm. and she was talking about how even at the university level, it seems like a lot of the students don't have that opportunity to be vulnerable, to open up, to really have anyone to discuss these complicated issues with. And that seems to be a huge problem across society. If you think about it, we spend the first 12 years of our lives in this institution There's so much potential in that time for you to be creating the best human beings ever. And I just think that the most fundamentally important is for kids and teenagers to feel like they are worthy and they are loved, they are capable. When you don't feel that way about yourself, It's hard for you to get anything done if you don't have this core confidence. I think that emotional support, it's unfair that only people who can afford it can go see a therapist. They should be learning about good nutrition. They should be learning how to express their feelings. Yes, learn basic reading, writing skills. Math, man, that's a tough one (laughs) because... Yes, there are occupations that do need to know math. But seriously, I'm thinking if you if you get to the point where you're like, oh, yeah, I want to be a mathematician, well, then learn it later on. But don't make us all have to learn it. <laughs> Instead of shoving facts into us, it's so important that in these early maturing years of our lives while we're developing who we are to make sure that... We are praised for being different. If I had teachers who said to me, you know what, you're unique and that's awesome. I don't think I would feel like such a weirdo in this world. I know that I was really different from a lot of my classmates and I saw that as a bad thing. I'm discovering now that, oh, (laughs) actually being different is what's making me successful. I did this show about all the ways that I'm kind of different and weird and stuff, and people really liked it. So it's a good thing to be different. Oh, I can keep going on and on. I'm getting sort of hungry, though, so my brain's going, ooh, ooh, just a little. Would you like a banana, some (laughs) trail mix? A banana? Do you have a banana? I do. Oh, I would love a banana. I hope you all enjoyed hearing from Sarah Rose Reynolds. I really love her energy. 
Tune in next episode, and you'll hear Will continue his middling attempts at being an interviewer. But right now, it's that time again. This episode is brought to you by Clarity the Musical. We haven't finished the casting process, but I'm pleased to announce that yours truly will be played by the only actor that can capture my passion, gravelly baritone, and rugged good looks, Sir Paul Giamatti. Larry, that's a great choice, but I don't think he's been knighted. And even if he has, you only use a Sir honorific if they're British. Oh, look at Mr. Know-It-All Will. I guess you'll be played by that Sheldon guy from Big Bang Theory. You mean... You got threat Jim Parsons? Uh, you're right. He's a talented guy. But only if we can't get Sheldon.